That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Tech Meme Ride Home is brought to you this week by WeWork Remotely. In the modern knowledge economy, where you live is increasingly not a deciding factor when it comes to the type of job you can land. If your skill sets and experience are in demand, you can work remotely from where you want, when you want, how you want, in your pajamas if you want. Want to work at a tech startup but can't afford to live in Silicon Valley? Companies are looking to hire remote workers for greater flexibility and access to the sort of workers they need when they need them. So if you're an in-demand worker, you can take advantage of this sort of flexibility by visiting WeWorkRemotely.com to join more than 130,000 job seekers who are applying to openings for designers, programmers, copywriters, marketing pros, even executive positions. More than 68,000 remote work positions have been posted at WeWork Remotely. So go to WeWorkRemotely.com. That's WeWorkRemotely.com and find a remote job that's right for you. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Thursday, September 5th, 2019. Today, China tracked Uyghur travelers by hacking Asian telcos. The company formerly known as WeWork drops its IPO target. Samsung has found a fold fix. Apple may bring back both Touch ID and a cheaper iPhone. MIT Media Lab's founder says the group was right to have accepted money from Jeffrey Epstein. Facebook launches its dating service in the U.S. Sim swapping is an obscure but growing security problem, and the Jeremy Renner app has been shot down. I'm Glenn Fleischman, in for Brian McCullough, who is on the road. And here's what you missed in the world of tech today. Reuters reports that hackers employed by the Chinese government broke into telephone networks in adjacent countries to track travelers who are part of the Uyghur people, a traditionally Muslim minority in China who live largely in the Xinjiang province in the far west of China. Reuters says Chinese hackers compromised phone networks in Turkey, Kazakhstan, India, Thailand, and Malaysia, which range along routes that Uyghurs follow trying to escape persecution from Chinese authorities. China has said Uyghurs may be heading to Iraq and Syria to join in the fighting, but that is not confirmed. China has interned as many as a million Uyghurs in forced re-education camps over the last two years, Amnesty International estimates. The report anonymously cites two government intelligence officials and two security consultants. Details continue to emerge related to the array of iPhone cracks that Google's zero-date research team uncovered and Apple patched early in 2019. Several reports indicate that these attacks and others for Android phones and other devices were planted to trap members of the Uyghur people. China has created one of the world's most extensive surveillance states in Xinjiang with electronic checkpoints and heavy use of facial recognition technology. Last summer, several reports emerged that visitors to Xinjiang were required to install spyware on their smartphones, which which extracted contact information and messages and checked to see if the devices had any of 73,000 banned documents or images on it. And some people wonder why there's so much resistance to the expansion of monitoring, ostensibly for our safety, in nations that represent themselves as democracies. 
the company formerly known as WeWork, and now just as we, as in we have a complicated business structure nobody understands and we bought the word we from our founder, is weighing a substantial reduction in the pricing of its initial public offering. One of its biggest investors, SoftBank, put money in at a $47 billion valuation earlier in 2019 and has invested over $10 billion overall. The new potential IPO range, according to Bloomberg, is 20 to $30 billion. One analyst Bloomberg spoke to suggested that we would aim for the lower end of that. We has faced a barrage of ridicule and withering financial analysis after it filed its IPO paperwork. The firm pitched itself as a software company, despite being in the business of office real estate ownership and rental. Comparable publicly traded firms that engage in largely the same business without woo-woo mission statements and without a cultish attention on their founder and CEO have significantly lower price-to-earnings ratios while actually being profitable and not having complicated entanglements. For instance, IWG has a similar number of occupied desks across its network of buildings, turned a $60 million profit on $1.6 billion in revenue in the first half of 2019, and it's valued at $4.5 billion. The former WeWork lost $1.37 billion on $1.54 billion in revenue in the first half of 2019. Among the many things discussed in Wee's filing was that founder Adam Newman sold the rights to the trademark for the word Wee to WeWork for $5.9 million. However, yesterday, the company said it would unwind that payment. A lot of folks in the financial and real estate industry note that the commercial market is at the hottest it's ever been and occupancy rates are at their peak. Everything from here on out is downward, so a company like Wee already losing money into the best market is unlikely to be able to cope with a bad one. WeWork may need to rename itself again as Won't Work. Samsung may have seemed unhinged earlier this year when it introduced a large screen foldable phone that reviewers immediately began to accidentally destroy. The release was postponed. Well, the Galaxy Fold is back, sort of, and as big as ever. The Verge reports that at the IFA Consumer Electronics Trade Show in Berlin, Samsung showed them a revised version of the phone that's sturdier and has more protections against several problems reviewers immediately encountered. The Fold is one big flexible tablet-like screen that folds in half to make a more compact footprint, and it features yet another screen on the front outside for when it's folded down. One of the key problems with the first iteration was that it required a plastic film covering the screen that looked like one of those aftermarket screen protectors or the temporary covers that are placed on many electronic devices to keep them safe and clean in packing and transit and are meant to be removed. Reviewers naturally tried to peel it off, which damaged the devices. In the revision, the film is firmly tucked underneath the bezel and The Verge's Tom Warren wrote that he made a determined effort to extract it and failed. When your device's success or doom comes down to a piece of plastic film, you may not have engineered it in the best way, so this hurdle has now been crossed. The updated hardware also includes plastic plugs to keep grit from getting into the screen near the fold and layers of metal under the display. Warren said the overall effect was to make the Galaxy Fold have a better sense of fit and finish. Warren writes, quote, You can laugh at the giant bezels or the display on the front, the main plastic display, or just how thick this device is, but it represents progress. That is, uh, that's kind of faint praise. But Samsung hasn't improved on the specs or the software. There are still no fold-specific features that take real advantage of the larger area, and no particular reason that people want a tablet that folds into a thick phone 
and costs $2,000. In a seemingly related move, Samsung has canceled all existing outstanding orders for the Fold through its online store and given those who wanted to be early adopters a $250 store credit. The company told customers whose orders were canceled that it wanted to, quote, rethink the entire customer experience from purchase to unboxing to post-purchase service. The phone ships September 6th in South Korea and September 18th in France, Germany, the UK, and Singapore. There's no release date yet for the US or other European nations. Pre-orders aren't available despite the imminent release, although there is a way for customers to reserve an upcoming phone without pre-ordering it. Got it? I'm sure the Fold will sell like, uh, what's the opposite of hotcakes? Cold pies? If you're currently running identity verification on your users, you are probably leaving money on the table. Any person who begins the sign-up process and leaves before becoming a user is lost revenue. Cognito by Blockscore is the identity verification service for the post-SSN world. Cognito's developer-friendly API instantly verifies users on your website with just a phone number using bank-grade identity verification. No asking for SSNs, addresses, strange questions about the color of your first car, or dare I say, a photo of your driver's license. Cognito's flexible scoring system helps you determine the relevance and quality of customer-submitted data in real-time, effortlessly. Cognito is trusted by hundreds of businesses to onboard millions of their customers seamlessly and safely. So if you need to trust your users are who they say they are without playing 20 questions, visit CognitoHQ.com and tell them Brian sent you. That's CognitoHQ.com. Yesterday, I told you about Supercast, which gives podcasters everything they need to sell subscription content to their listeners and build predictable recurring revenue, all while cutting out the middleman so podcasters can own their listener relationship from end to end. Here are some more amazing features. Supercast gives podcasters a branded landing page, payment processing, member management, and private feed delivery. And they make it super simple for listeners to sign up, pay, and subscribe. Listeners can sign up in minutes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, then subscribe to private feeds in their favorite podcast player with just a couple of taps. If you already have a website or member management setup, it's easy to integrate Supercast with your existing website, member management, and email marketing infrastructure. Unlike platforms like Patreon, Supercast was designed from the ground up for podcasters. With Supercast, listeners don't need to sign up for accounts on a third-party community platform, juggle copy and pasting RSS feeds, or download new apps to access and enjoy subscription podcast content. Any podcaster who wants to set up a private members-only feed can be up and running on Supercast quickly. Visit Supercast.com to learn more and get started with Supercast today. Apple retouches itself. According to Bloomberg, the news outlet, which has great Apple sources, says that the fingerprint sensor will return to iPhones in 2020. Apple focused on Face ID, its facial identification technology, starting with the new iPhone X series in 2017. A new iteration of phones is due to be announced in just a few days, and they will certainly also use our Fizz to authenticate us. But Apple's purported plan is to build fingerprint recognition directly into the screen of a new phone model instead of relying on a combination button and touch sensor found in older models. This is predicated on getting the in-screen sensor to work, though. It's still in testing, Bloomberg writes. The report also notes that Apple has plans to release a less expensive phone model for the first time in years as early as the first half of 2020. 
The iPhone SE was a throwback with a 4-inch screen and low price when introduced in 2016, but Apple discontinued it in 2018 and has offered only larger phones at increasingly higher entry-level prices. Bloomberg says the low-cost phone would be similar to an iPhone 8 with a 4.7-inch screen. The iPhone 8's base model is currently $600, while the iPhone SE launched at $400 with a quite small amount of storage by today's standards, just 16 gigabytes. Details about this year's slate of new phones are expected during an Apple event on September 10th, and most of the details appear to have already leaked. This includes a three-camera phone for... This includes a phone with three cameras for panoramic-style wide-angle shots, and the phones will have better water resistance and improved shatter resistance. Nicholas Negroponte said that the MIT Media Lab was right to take convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's money. In a story in the MIT Technology Review, Negroponte is quoted saying at a Media Lab meeting yesterday, at which the reporter was present, quote, if you wind back the clock, I would still say, take it. The reporter says he then repeated the phrase more emphatically, take it. Negroponte attempted to walk back his statement, telling the Boston Globe later that he meant only based on what was known at the time, not later disclosures. That is not what people at the meeting largely thought he was saying, however, according to the technology review. Epstein committed suicide last month while in jail on charges of sex trafficking. Epstein had cultivated friendships and academic relationships with many leading scientists, all male, and made donations to a number of institutions, including Harvard and MIT. Epstein alleged he was a billionaire and seemed to have vast sums at his disposal. Negroponte founded the Media Lab at MIT in 1985, and it's been a remarkable place for theoretical and practical thinking and invention around the future of technology. Joy Ito took over from him in 2011 and revealed after Epstein's death that he knew Epstein and had taken money both for the Media Lab and let Epstein put money into funds Ito controls that invest in tech startups. Ito issued a broad apology on August 15th, and some prominent figures have put their names out in support of him remaining as the lab's head. Others have called for Ito's resignation over the matter. Ethan Zuckerman, who ran the Media Lab Center for Civic Media, resigned from the Media Lab and will wind down its presence there this year and find it a new home. He said he declined meeting Epstein at Ito's request in 2014 and urged Ito not to meet with him. The meeting at which Negroponte spoke was intended as an effort to move forward at Media Lab, with Ito explaining why he decided to stay and engage in what he called restorative justice, and he apologized repeatedly during the meeting. Technology Review reports that he said, I'm part of the problem when I thought I was part of the solution. I'm that guy that I thought I was going after. Near the end, however, Negroponte stood and made his remarks, bragging about how many billionaires he knew and defending the Epstein fundraising and seemingly describing a friendship with Epstein. The meeting ended in tears and Negroponte being told repeatedly to shut up. When it comes to the most intimate part of our lives, who do we trust? That's right, Facebook. Insert record scratch here. Wait, Facebook? Well, the privacy-devouring social networking giant thinks that Americans will trust them enough to try its dating service, that has the creative name Facebook Dating, just launched today in the United States. This is the 20th country in which it's available. Dating will compete with an array of variously focused dating, marriage-oriented, and hookup apps, some of which date back decades. The dating service integrates with Instagram, allowing posts from Instagram to be added to a dating profile. It also offers a feature called Secret Crush, in which people tag other people in which they have an interest, and if that person also secretly tags the tagger, they're connected and can chat. 
Facebook appears to have taken somewhat more care with dating than it has with other services and features. Users of the app aren't shown their Facebook friends, allowing them to keep their dating lives private, and can even mark the account so that friends of friends don't appear as potential matches. Facebook has billions of users and so far has no plans to charge for this feature, which gives it an advantage over the many competitors that, you know, have to derive revenue from offering a service and can't use a dominant position to exercise a sort of predatory offer to drive other companies out of business before then beginning to levy a fee. The service relies on a variety of data to figure out matches, but Facebook, of course, doesn't disclose exactly what and how. If you've ever had on people surfaced as suggested friends, like a therapist or a long-ago ex-partner with whom you had no points of intersection online, I'm sure this will work out just great for dating. Anyway, I think we're all already Facebook dating given how well they know us and many people have chosen to break up in recent years. Sim swapping sounds like sex in a video game, but it's in fact a method of hijacking someone's phone number and often using it to steal cryptocurrency from online wallets, real cash, or to take over accounts. This happened recently to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, where because he left post via SMS enabled on his account, Someone who likely used social engineering to get Dorsey's cell phone number switched to their phone was able to post horrible messages as at Jack for a short period. Yesterday, Twitter disabled posting via SMS in what it called a temporary move. The New York Times digs into the dangers of SIM swapping today, trying to bring to a broader readership knowledge of a problem that they may never have heard of. A SIM is the subscriber identity module found in phones used on most networks worldwide, including AT&T and T-Mobile in the U.S. and many smaller carriers. With a stolen phone number, a hacker can receive password resets, security tokens, and other information, often allowing them to crack an account by itself or in conjunction with other purloined information. SIM swapping so far is a retail operation, that is, it's carried out on specific numbers and typically requires access to a suborned customer or service rep at a carrier or talking a rep into making a change after providing private information to validate themselves. That kind of information is widely available for free or a small fee online, including via database breaches. That means it's only affected a relative few people so far, often high-profile targets, as opposed to wide-scale phishing or hacking attempts in which millions or billions of people can be targeted at once and automatically. However, it's not difficult to do. Allison Nixon, the director of research at the security firm Flashpoint, told The Times, quote, it requires no skill and there is literally nothing the average person can do to stop it. Finally, it's the end of the road for the Jeremy Renner app. The movie star, who has been the butt of a number of jokes for the way in which his Hawkeye character was used and sometimes overlooked in the Avengers and related movies, has shut down an app aimed at his superfans. Who must exist, right? Yes, they do. It's not even ridiculous. Renner is a fine actor who delivers solid, interesting performances. He's a celebrity and apparently a perfectly decent human being and has an interesting look that one might call unconventionally handsome. It's not far-fetched, sorry, far-fetched for him to have superfans. The app, however, was apparently almost a skin for Renner's public Instagram account, and it included music he recorded. He and his music recently appeared in a Jeep commercial. But it also included social media features, including the ability to purchase or be granted stars that, when collected, allowed your comments to rise to the top and potentially be seen by Renner. No utopia can last, and Renner's app wound up overwhelmed by trolls and goofs who posted under fake identities and invaded comment threads. At Deadspin, comedian Stefan Heck 
claim responsibility for accidentally triggering the onslaught of absurdity and nastiness, he posted one message mentioning he was going to watch porno, and it looks like a hellscape descended from there. Renner opted to shut down the app. A message posted in a pseudo-handwriting font said, What was supposed to be a place for fans to connect with each other has turned into a place that is everything I detest and can't or won't condone. The typeface, by the way, is Bradley Hand, as identified by Twitter poster Hunter Harris. The app is refunding all star purchases made in the last 90 days. And that's the news. I'm Glenn Fleischman, and thank you for your kind attention. Brian McCullough is in an undisclosed location, and we have a dead man switch protocol in place for tomorrow, crossed with a Schrodinger's cat. You may or may not hear me tomorrow, depending on the settings in your particular universe. You can find me in the future at Glenn F, that's G-L-E-N-N-F, on Twitter or at glog, G-L-O-G dot glennf.com on the internet. Thanks to the editors at TechMeme, who tweet out every headline they post every hour of the day at TechMeme. It's a great way to keep current. Have a great evening.